Part 2, Chapter 7, Section 80 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 7, Discourses of Jesus in the Fourth Gospel. Section 80, Conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus. The first considerable specimen which the fourth gospel gives of the teaching of Jesus is his conversation with Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. In the previous chapter, verses 23 through 25, it is narrated that during the first Passover attended by Jesus after his entrance on his public ministry, he had won many to faith in him by the miracles which he performed and that he did not commit himself to them, because he saw through them. He was aware, that is, of the uncertainty and impurity of their faith. Then follows in our present chapter, as an example, not only of the adherents whom Jesus had found even thus early, but also of the wariness with which he tested and received them. A more detailed account how Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee, applied to him, and how he was treated by Jesus. It is through the Gospel of John alone that we learn anything of this Nicodemus, who in chapter 7 verse 50 and following, appears as an advocate of Jesus, so far as to protest against his being condemned without a hearing, and in chapter 19 verse 39, as the partaker with Joseph of Arimathea, of the care of interring Jesus. Modern criticism, with reason, considers it surprising that Matthew, with the other synoptists, does not even mention the name of this remarkable adherent of Jesus, and that we have to gather all our knowledge of him from the fourth gospel, since the peculiar relation in which Nicodemus stood to Jesus, and his participation in the care of his interment, must have been as well known to Matthew as to John. This difficulty has been numbered among the arguments which are thought to prove that the first gospel was not written by the apostle Matthew, but was the product of a tradition considerably more remote from the time and locality of Jesus. But the fact is that the common fund of tradition on which all the synoptists drew had preserved no notice of this Nicodemus. With touching piety, the Christian legend has recorded in the tablets of her memory the names of all the others who helped to render the last honors to their murdered master, of Joseph of Arimathea and the two Marys. Matthew chapter 27 verses 57 through 61 and parallel passages. Why then was Nicodemus the only neglected one? He who was especially distinguished among those who tended the remains of Jesus, by his nocturnal interview with the teacher sent from God, and by his advocacy of him among the chief priests and Pharisees. It is so difficult to conceive that the name of this man, if he had really assumed such a position, would have vanished from the popular evangelical tradition without leaving a single trace that one is induced to inquire whether the contrary supposition be not more capable of explanation, namely, 
that such a relation between Nicodemus and Jesus might have been fabricated by tradition and adopted by the author of the fourth gospel without having really subsisted. John chapter 12 verse 42 it is expressly said that many among the chief rulers believed on Jesus, but concealed their faith from dread of excommunication by the Pharisees, because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That towards the end of his career, many people of rank believed in Jesus, even in secret only, is not very probable since no indication of it appears in the Acts of the Apostles. For that the advice of Gamaliel, Acts chapter 5, verse 34 and following, did not originate on a positively favorable disposition towards the cause of Jesus, seems to be sufficiently demonstrated by the spirit of his disciple Saul. Moreover, the synoptists make Jesus declare in plain terms that the secret of his messiahship had been revealed only to babes and hidden from the wise and prudent matthew chapter 11 verse 25 luke chapter 10 verse 21 and joseph of arimathea is the only individual of the ruling class whom they mention as an adherent of jesus how then if jesus did not really attach to himself any from the upper ranks came the case to be represented differently at a later period. In John chapter 7 verse 48 and following, we read that the Pharisees sought to disparage Jesus by the remark that none of the rulers or of the Pharisees, but only of the ignorant populace, believed on him. And even later adversaries of Christianity, for example, Celsus, laid great stress on the circumstance that Jesus had had his disciples Epiritus Anthropus, Telonas Kainautas Tus Ponirotatus. This reproach was a thorn in the side of the early church, and though as long as her members were drawn only from the people, she might reflect with satisfaction on the declarations of Jesus, in which he had pronounced the poor and simple blessed. Yet so soon as she was joined by men of rank and education, these would lean to the idea that converts like themselves had not been wanting to Jesus during his life. But, it would be objected, nothing had been hitherto known of such converts. Naturally enough, it might be answered, since fear of their equals would induce them to conceal their relations with Jesus. Thus, a door was opened for the admission of any number of secret adherents among the higher class. John chapter 12, verse 42 and following. But, it would be further urged, how could they have intercourse with Jesus unobserved? Under the veil of the night, would be the answer, and thus the scene was laid for the interviews of such men with Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 39. This, however, would not suffice. A representative of this class must actually appear on the scene. Joseph of Arimathea might have been chosen, his name being still extant in the synoptical tradition, but the idea of him was too definite, and it was in the interest of the legend to name more than one eminent friend of Jesus. 
hence a new personage was devised whose greek name nicodemus seems to point him out significantly as the representative of the dominant class that this development of the legend is confined to the fourth gospel is to be explained partly by the generally admitted lateness of its origin and partly on the ground that in the evidently more cultivated circle in which it arose the limitation of the adherents of jesus to the common people would be more offensive than in the circle in which the synoptical tradition was formed thus the reproach which modern criticism has cast on the first gospel on the score of its silence respecting nicodemus is turned upon the fourth on the score of its information on the same subject these considerations however should not create any prejudice against the ensuing conversation which is the proper object of our investigations this may still be in the main genuine jesus may have held such a conversation with one of his adherents and our evangelist may have embellished it no further than by making this interlocutor a man of rank neither will we with the author of the probabilia take umbrage at the opening address of nicodemus nor complain with him that there is a want of connection between that address and the answer of jesus the requisition of a new birth as a condition of entrance into the kingdom of heaven does not differ essentially from the summons with which jesus opens his ministry in the synoptical gospels repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand new birth or new creation was a current image among the jews especially as denoting the conversion of an idolater into a worshipper of jehovah it was customary to say of abraham that when according to the jewish supposition he renounced idolatry for the worship of the true god he became a new creature the proselyte too in allusion to his relinquishing all his previous associations was compared to a new-born child that such phraseology was common among the jews at that period is shown by the confidence with which paul applies as if it required no explanation the term new creation to those truly converted to christ now if jesus required even from the jews as a condition of entrance into the messianic kingdom a new birth which they ascribed to their heathen proselytes nicodemus might naturally wonder at the requisition since the israelite thought himself as such unconditionally entitled to that kingdom and this is the construction which has been put upon his question verse four but nicodemus does not ask how canst thou say that a jew or a child of abraham must be born again his ground of wonder is that jesus appears to suppose it possible for a man to be born again and that when he is old it does not therefore astonish him that spiritual new birth should be expected in a jew but corporeal new birth in a man how an oriental to whom figurative speech in general how a jew to whom the image of the new birth in particular must have been familiar how especially a master of israel 
in whom the misconstruction of figurative phrases cannot as in the apostles for example matthew chapter fifteen verse fifteen and following chapter sixteen verse seven be ascribed to want of education could understand this expression literally has been matter of extreme surprise to expositors of all parties as well as to jesus verse ten hence some have supposed that the pharisee really understood jesus and only intended by his question to test the ability of jesus to interpret his figurative expression into a simple proposition but jesus does not treat him as a hypocrite as in that case he must have done he continues to instruct him as one really ignorant verse ten others give the question the following turn this cannot be meant in a physical sense how then otherwise but the true drift of the question is rather the contrary by these words i can only understand physical new birth but how is this possible our wonder at the ignorance of the jewish doctor therefore returns upon us and it is heightened when after the copious explanation of jesus verses five through eight that the new birth which he required was a spiritual birth nicodemus has made no advance in comprehension but asks with the same obtuseness as before verse nine how can these things be by this last difficulty luca is so straitened that contrary to his ordinary exegetical tact he refers the continued amazement of nicodemus as other expositors had referred his original question to the circumstance that jesus maintained the necessity of new birth even for israelites but in that case nicodemus would have inquired concerning the necessity not the possibility of that birth instead of asking how can these things be he would have asked why must these things be this inconceivable mistake in a jewish doctor is not then to be explained away and our surprise must become strong suspicion so soon as it can be shown that legend or the evangelist had inducements to represent this individual as more simple than he really was first then it must occur to us that in all descriptions and recitals contrasts are eagerly exhibited hence in the representation of a colloquy on which one party is the teacher the other the taught there is a strong temptation to create a contrast to the wisdom of the former by exaggerating the simplicity of the latter further we must remember the satisfaction it must give to a christian mind of that age to place a master of israel in the position of an unintelligent person by the side of the master of the christians lastly it is as we shall presently see more clearly the constant method of the fourth evangelist in detailing the conversations of jesus to form the knot and the progress of the discussion by making the interlocutors understand literally what jesus intended figuratively in reply to the second query of nicodemus jesus takes entirely the tone of the fourth evangelist's prologue verses eleven through thirteen the question hence arises whether the evangelist borrowed from jesus 
or lent to him his own style. A previous investigation has decided in favor of the latter alternative, but this inquiry referred merely to the form of the discourses. In relation to their matter, its analogy with the ideas of Philo does not authorize us at once to conclude that the writer here puts his Alexandrian doctrine of the Logos into the mouth of Jesus, because the expressions, we speak that we do know, etc., and no man hath ascended up to heaven, etc., have an analogy with Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, and the idea of the pre-existence of the Messiah, which is here propounded, is, as we have seen, not foreign to the Apostle Paul. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus proceeds from the more simple things of the earth, the communications concerning the new birth, to the more difficult things of heaven, the announcement of the destination of the Messiah to a vicarious death. The Son of Man, he says, must be lifted up, which in John's phraseology signifies crucifixion, with an allusion to a glorifying exaltation. In the same way, and with the same effect as the brazen serpent, Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Here, many questions press upon us. Is it credible that Jesus, already at the very commencement of his public ministry, foresaw his death, and in the specific form of crucifixion, and that long before he instructed his disciples on this point, he made a communication on the subject to a Pharisee? Can it be held consistent with the wisdom of Jesus as a teacher, that he should impart such knowledge to Nicodemus? Even Luca puts the question why, when Nicodemus had not understood the more obvious doctrine, Jesus tormented him with the more recondite, and especially with the secret of the Messiah's death, which was then so remote. He answers, It accords perfectly with the wisdom of Jesus as a teacher, that he should reveal the sufferings appointed for him by God as early as possible, because no instruction was better adapted to cast down the false worldly hopes. But the more remote the idea of the Messiah's death from the conceptions of his contemporaries, owing to the worldliness of their expectations, the more impressively and unequivocally must Jesus express that idea, if he wished to promulgate it, not in an enigmatical form which he could not be sure that Nicodemus would understand. Luca continues, Nicodemus was a man open to instruction, one of whom good might be expected. But in this very conversation, his dullness of comprehension in earthly things had evinced that he must have still less capacity for heavenly things. And according to verse 12, Jesus himself despaired of enlightening him with respect to them. Luca, however, observes that it was a practice with Jesus to follow up easy doctrine, which had not been comprehended, by difficult doctrine, which was, of course, less comprehensible that he proposed thus to give a spur to the minds of his hearers, and by straining their attention, engage them to reflect. But the examples which Luca adduces of such proceeding on the part of Jesus 
are all drawn from the fourth gospel. Now the very point in question is whether that gospel correctly represents the teaching of Jesus. Consequently, Luca argues in a circle. We have seen a similar procedure ascribed to Jesus in his conversation with the woman of Samaria, and we have already declared our opinion that such an overburthening of weak faculties with enigma on enigma does not accord with the wise rule as to the communication of doctrine, which the same gospel puts into the mouth of Jesus, chapter 16, verse 12. It would not stimulate, but confuse, the mind of the hearer, who persisted in a misapprehension of the well-known figure of the new birth, to present to him the novel comparison of the Messiah and his death to a brazen serpent and its effects, a comparison quite incongruous with his Jewish ideas. In the first three Gospels, Jesus pursues an entirely different course. In these, where a misconstruction betrays itself on the part of the disciples, Jesus, except where he breaks off altogether, or where it is evident that the evangelist unhistorically associates a number of metaphorical discourses, applies himself with the assiduity of an earnest teacher to the thorough explanation of the difficulty, and not until he has effected this does he proceed step by step to convey further instruction. For example, Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 and following, verse 36 and following, chapter 15, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 8 and following. This is the method of a wise teacher. On the contrary, to leap from one subject to another, to overburthen and strain the mind of the hearer, a mode of instruction which the fourth evangelist attributes to Jesus, is wholly inconsistent with that character. To explain this inconsistency, we must suppose that the writer of the fourth gospel thought to heighten in the most effective manner the contrast which appears from the first between the wisdom of the one party and the incapacity of the other by representing the teacher as overwhelming the pupil who put unintelligent questions on the most elementary doctrine with lofty and difficult themes beneath which his faculties are laid prostrate from verse sixteen even those commentators who pretend to some ability in this department lose all hope of showing that the remainder of the discourse may have been spoken by Jesus. Not only does Paulus make this confession, but even Olhausen with a concise statement of his reasons. At the above verse, any special reference to Nicodemus vanishes, and there is commenced an entirely general discourse on the destination of the Son of God, to confer a blessing on the world, and on the manner in which unbelief forfeits this blessing. Moreover, these ideas are expressed in a form, which at one moment appears to be a reminiscence of the evangelist's introduction, and at another has a striking similarity with passages in the first epistle of John. In particular, the expression, the only begotten Son, which is repeatedly, verse 16 and 18, attributed to Jesus as a designation of his own person, is nowhere else to be found in his mouth, even in the fourth gospel. This circumstance, however, 
marks it still more positively as a favorite phrase of the evangelist chapter one verses fourteen through eighteen and of the writer of the epistles first john chapter four verse nine further many things are spoken of as past which at the supposed period of this conversation with nicodemus were yet future for even if the words he gave refer not to the giving over to death but to the sending of the messiah into the world the expressions men loved darkness and their deeds were evil verse nineteen as luca also remarks could only be used after the triumph of darkness had been achieved in the rejection and execution of jesus they belonged then to the evangelist's point of view at the time when he wrote not to that of jesus when on the threshold of his public ministry in general the whole of this discourse attributed to jesus with its constant use of the third person to designate the supposed speaker with its dogmatical terms only begotten light and the like applied to jesus with its comprehensive view of the crisis and its results which the appearance of jesus produced is far too objective for us to believe that it came from the lips of jesus jesus could not speak thus of himself but the evangelist might speak thus of jesus hence the same expedient has been adopted as in the case of the baptist's discourse already considered and it has been supposed that jesus is the speaker down to verse sixteen but that from that point the evangelist appends his own dogmatic reflections but there is again here no intimation of such a transition in the text rather the connecting word for verse sixteen seems to indicate a continuation of the same discourse no writer at least of all the fourth evangelist compare chapter seven verse thirty nine chapter eleven verse fifty one and following chapter twelve verse sixteen chapter thirty three verse thirty seven and following would scatter his own observations thus indistinguishingly unless he wished to create a misapprehension if then it be established that the evangelist from verse sixteen to the end of the discourse means to represent jesus as the speaker while jesus can never have so spoken we cannot rest satisfied with the half measure adopted by luca when he maintains that it is really jesus who continues to speak from the above passage but that the evangelist has inwoven his own explanations and amplifications more liberally than before for this admission undermines all certainty as to how far the discourse belongs to jesus and how far to the evangelist besides as the discourse is distinguished by the closest uniformity of thought and style it must be ascribed either wholly to jesus or wholly to the evangelist of these two alternatives the former is according to the above considerations impossible we are therefore restricted to the latter which we have observed to be entirely consistent with the manner of the fourth evangelist but not only on the passage verses sixteen through twenty one 
must we pass this judgment? Verse 14 has appeared to us out of keeping with the position of Jesus, and the behavior of Nicodemus, verses 4 and 9, altogether inconceivable. Thus, in the very first sample, when compared with the observations which we have already made on John chapter 3, verse 22 and following, chapter 4, verse 1 and following, the fourth gospel presents to us all the peculiarities which characterize its mode of reporting the discourses of Jesus. They are usually commenced in the form of a dialogue, and so far as this extends, the lever that propels the conversation is the striking contrast between the spiritual sense and the carnal interpretation of the language of Jesus. Generally, however, the dialogue is merged into an uninterrupted discourse, in which the writer blends the person of Jesus with his own, and makes the former use concerning himself, language which could only be used by John concerning Jesus. End of section 80